Good morning, church. What a blessing to be together. I'm excited to jump into our text today. But I do, before we get into it, I feel like I have to just comment. What a strange Sunday. I mean, normally about this time of the year, probably this Sunday, we'd be setting aside time to to celebrate our graduated seniors and recognize them in the Sunday gathering. And by the way, if you haven't already reached out to our seniors, uh, you should reach out to them, let them know you love them, you're proud of them. Um, We love you, class of 2020. Uh, The seniors here at Red Tree have been so faithful and loving and serving and laboring with our church. We love you guys and we're grateful for you. If you know one of the seniors here at Red Tree, make sure you reach out to them and congratulate them in what is uh, a weird time. We've finished up our series on prayer. We're getting ready to jump into a series, our summer series. This year will be on the book of Esther, which I'm really excited for. I think it's going to be really good. We're going to be talking about what it means to to be God's people on God's mission in a society uh, that is largely uh, indifferent toward the gospel and toward Jesus. It's kind of the story of Esther, and we're going to be digging through that together, and I think it'll be really good. But setting those two things aside, on top of all that, we're we're in the midst of this transition, right? Like we've been for the last several months in this shelter at home order. And now as the world and our state and our city and our county begin to open back up, many of us are going back into offices and back into restaurants and back into family gatherings. And and there's a lot of back and forth about what it means to submit to authority and what it means to protect personal liberty. And in the midst of all of that, our little church is trying to navigate how to best glorify God as we walk through St. Louis County's reopening. There's a lot going on, and it's a weird Sunday. And as I prayed over what we would spend some time talking about before we jump into our summer series, I feel like God kept bringing me back to this very specific aspect of the gospel that I think we just need to remind ourselves of and celebrate today. And that's this, the patience of our God. I want to say that again. The patience of God is a fundamental piece of the gospel story. And I think it has immediate bearing on our experience of the gospel and our engagement with the world around us. So with that in mind, turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to grab a hold of a text today that I think is going to help illuminate some of what I mean and then some of this idea of the patience of God in the gospel. So 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that they're done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes to dig into your word, to talk about your amazing, patient love toward us, that you would be our interpreter, be our discipler. Holy Spirit, illuminate the truth of your text. Make it known to us. Push away distractions. Push away the lies we hear, the lies we tell ourselves, the things that keep us from you and from your truth. And let us hear from you today. God, give us soft hearts, eager, eager to hear your gospel, eager to repent and eager to find life in you. We need you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So I know there's a lot in this text and that on a first reading, it's relatively easy to kind of get lost in the weeds. So let's do this. I'd like to give us a little context on Peter's epistles as a whole, and that'll kind of set up our passage. Then I'd like to point out a couple historical, textual, cultural issues that, that are likely roadblocks for our immediate understanding of what's kind of going on in this specific text. I think that'll help get us to what God has for us today in this text. And we're going to end out our time with some of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians and by taking communion together. Perfect. So, Second Peter is the second and final of Peter's letters. This is the Apostle Peter who uh, followed after Jesus, who denied him, who was restored, who became one of the primary leaders in the early church and eventually became kind of the leader of the church in Rome. Peter sent these two letters, First and Second Peter, to kind of an, a larger network of churches in the Asia Minor area. This would, include, would have included churches like Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica and Laodicea, like that kind of area. Second Peter is unique in that Peter wrote it in Nero's persecution as it was kind of ramping up when he realized, 
uh, he was going to die soon. He knew he was short for this world, and he wrote 2 Peter as this sort of farewell letter to the churches. It represents Peter's closing word or closing teaching to the church at large, and thus it is full of passion. It is an intense letter. His encouragement, his challenge, his warnings, they all hit really hard when you read 2 Peter. You add into that the fact that Peter has a unique voice in his writing. He writes in very simple and very direct ways, right? Like this isn't Paul. There's no big, long run-on sentences and fancy language. Peter gets to the point and he gets there passionately. So all of that comes together to make 2 Peter just on the surface a really challenging book. To kind of, to kind of summarize the whole text of 2 Peter, uh, we can put our text in context by remembering this letter, remember Peter's closing teaching to the church, was essentially set up to challenge them and warn them. So he challenges the church in 2 Peter to never stop growing in Christ. These are kind of the, the parting words, the parting, the parting challenge, the parting teaching that Peter gives to the church at large. Never stop growing in your faith. Never stop growing in Christ. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you have holiness to grow and you have sanctification to experience and you have more faith to dig into. And then he gives these two warnings to the church against a very specific kind of false teacher. First, he warns the church to avoid teachers who claim that God does not care about morality or moral choices. These teachers, Peter says, are slaves to their flesh. They don't realize that God will judge all evil in the world which kind of transitions into the second warning, which really is our text today. And that's to avoid teachers who claim that if God cared about morality, he sure is taking his dear sweet time in doing something about it. It's, it's two different warnings, but kind of nuanced around this same idea. Peter's warning against these teachers who essentially say, your personal holiness, your personal morality doesn't matter because God's not doing anything about it. So enjoy yourself. This is kind of sets the scene for our text. So Peter has challenged these false teachers who claim that Christian freedom basically means you can do whatever the heck you want morally. They're claiming that God doesn't care about this world because he's not doing anything about it. And our specific text is Peter's specific response to that poor theology. So let's pick our text apart and see if we can kind of figure out what Peter's saying here. When we read this text, it's, it's so easy to get caught up when he's talking about well, water and fire and the earth being destroyed. And, and maybe if you're a little more theologically like astute, right? Like maybe you can derail into this rabbit trail about the sovereignty debate and, and the line of God's will and him wanting everyone to be saved. But those things are all interesting and they're even beneficial and probably fruitful conversations. But I want to encourage you guys for our time today, let's, let's table the rabbit trails and let's see if we can cut in to the plain 
teaching of Peter. That stuff's interesting. Look, if you're if you want to geek out on theology and sovereignty and you want to get into Peter's understanding of the world and this whole thing about elements and connections between Christian theology and Greek philosophy and all those things, more power to you. I'll help connect you to resources, right? But but for this purpose, for this time right here, let, let's try and pause the rabbit trails and really ask ourselves, what is the plain thing that Peter is saying to the church? I think, I think it's paramount that we allow ourselves to really hear Peter in this text. So look back at this with me. He starts our text by basically saying, look, None of this is new. I'm not telling you anything new. Remember what the prophets and teachers and apostles have been saying all along. This warning slash teaching that I'm about to give you isn't new. Peter is just reminding the church, us, right, the church, what has been said and taught all along. But the reminder is needed because there are scoffers, as Peter says. So, so what is meant by this scoffer? He's referring to a specific kind of person who exists in the orbit of the church. They may claim to be believers or they may not, but they are close enough to the life of the church to look at the teaching of the gospel, the thing we celebrate day in and day out, week in and week out, and scoff at it or mock it. Essentially, what Peter is saying these scoffers say is, well, you keep saying Jesus will come back and fix what is wrong. You keep saying that sin and holiness matters because Jesus died for sin and he's coming back to judge and set things right. When? Because it certainly seems like things are just going on generation to generation like they always have. Sin and holiness obviously don't matter that much because Jesus would hurry the heck up and come and judge and fix stuff. Now, it's important to note that Peter's talking about people who are mocking the gospel. Mocking it. Scoffing at it. But this is also a valid critique of the message of the gospel that we celebrate. I know as soon as I said that, right, like that sits poorly with some of us, but, but we need to sit in that for a moment. If Jesus loves this world so much and cares so much about it, why does he delay? Why does it seem like things are just going on like they've always gone on? Evil happens. Good people suffer. Terrible pandemics take lives. There is injustice. There is suffering. There is evil. The, the, sometimes the good flourish. Sometimes the good fails. Sometimes the evil flourish. Sometimes the evil fail. It just seems like it's all just happening. So if Jesus is who he says he is, how come he's doing nothing about it? If you've never considered this question, friend, believer, brother or sister, you should. You should. From a strictly human perspective, it's an important question. And it represents a, a version or, or, or a way of articulating one of the most common objections to Christianity. 
If God is who he says he is, why is there so much evil in the world? Why doesn't it seem like things are changing? Peter's response is the biblical response. And we would do well to sit in this. He says, if you think things have gone on generation after generation with no change, with God not intervening, then you either haven't read the scripture or you're not paying attention. God has intervened directly to judge sin multiple times over the course of human history. Look at the Old Testament. Over the course of 2 Peter, Paul, Peter references several of these times when God directly intervenes to bring about immediate judgment and punishment for sin and evil in the world. But here's the thing. We live in a post-cross world. Praise be to God. God's not going to wipe out the earth with another flood. Final judgment for sin will come, but it's going to be different than it's been in the past. Now, I don't want you guys to lose this discussion with Peter's use of water and fire and destruction imagery. It's, it's all really fascinating if you, if you dig into this. And again, I already said this, like I can point you to some resources if you're intrigued by this, but, but for our purposes, I'm just gonna kind of ask you to take my word for this. Peter is essentially grabbing a hold of pre-existing language common to the day from existing Greek philosophy to kind of prove his point. You see, there was this debate in Peter's day about the essential elements that make up the world. What is everything made out of? This is kind of the great, great grandfather of, of modern like atomic theory or subatomic particles. What, what is stuff made out of? And there were varying levels of debate about all things being made out of water or fire or air or some strange combination of those things. Peter grabs a hold of this existing language that would have been known in that day and injects it with biblical truth. He essentially says, whatever you say things are made of, they are made by God. And he specifically grabs a hold of this idea of the word of God as the creative force and the authority over creation. The word of God created and his word has judged before and his word will judge again. But this still, right? Like even if you're following that, it still leaves the question. If God cares so much about holiness, why is he waiting so long? And by the way, I think it's important to remember this question was being asked of the church within one lifetime of Jesus's ministry. Jesus lived on this earth, lived the perfect life, died for our sins, rose again, rose unto heaven and promised that he would come back and complete the work and restore all things to perfection and take us with him into eternity. And within one generation, people were already asking, if this is so true, why is he waiting so long? Why is it taking so long for him to come back if he really cares about justice and holiness? Guys, it's been 2,000 years since these questions began plaguing the church. 
They're valid questions. Why? Why is he taking so long? If this is real like you say it is, if he is who you say he is, why would he delay? Peter's answer should be a bombshell for us. God is delaying his final judgment because he is patient and loving. Let me say that again. God is delaying his final judgment because he is patient and loving. You see this? Well, look at the text. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter paints this wonderful picture of the gospel love that God has for mankind. He loved us so dearly that he has chosen to slow roll his final judgment and the return of Jesus so that more people have time to repent. Now, that means there's more room for injustice. More room for sin, more time for evil, more time for wrong. And this is why the scoffers say that God must not really care if he exists. We hear this argument over and over and over again in our day against the gospel. God is either uncaring or unable to prevent evil. Wrong. Wrong. He is loving and he is patient. So he's allowing more time, more time for the gospel to be preached, more time for more people to come to repentance, more time for his church to advance the truth of his kingdom, to proclaim who he is to the world who needs him. Look where Peter goes after this statement. Don't you dare miss the reality of judgment. God will return and he will judge. The language here is hard for us. He talks about things being set on fire and dissolved and burned up. But, but, but again, like stick with me. Don't be distracted. That There's a nuance to the Greek here that we miss in the English. This, this, this beautiful and terrifying, colorful language points to a very specific understanding of God's power and God's thoughts toward evil in this world. That, that word that we read in English as dissolve also means sort of like peeling back in the Greek, like think banana peel, right? The image here is that God is able to peel back the very sky, the very creation, the very stars and planets so that everything in existence, everything in reality is fully exposed to him. In other words, there are no secrets from God. He will judge and when it comes time to judge, he will judge everything. Everything. So, Peter ends the text. We are to live holy lives. We are to seek to bring about God's kingdom here and now. 
because judgment is coming. So what do we, what do we do with this text? It's pretty intense. It's pretty in your face. Even if you cut through some of the distracting imagery, you're still left with this just really kind of in your face, blunt challenge to the church and to the world at large. I think the truth of this text for us today is simple and beautiful. Guys, the absolute root of the gospel is God's love expressed in his patience to us. I mean, he loves us and he desires that we, that, that, that you and I, that we would come to salvation. So he's patient in his love. He moves towards that final judgment and that final justice slowly as some count slowness, that more might come to salvation. Now, this is not a license to sin all we want, like some of the teachers in Peter's day was saying. Rather, this is a stark reminder and a stark warning to us. Judgment is coming. Repent. Repent of your sin. Repent now. Don't wait. Beloved of Jesus, if you, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, you need to hear this. You must repent and believe the gospel. There is no gospel without repentance. God is coming back to judge all things. And if your sin has not been covered in the blood of Jesus, freely offered for you through faith and repentance, you will experience the judgment of God and his full wrath. And that is terrible. Do not delay. Repent and believe and receive life and freedom from your sin. Now, I know that many of us in a space like this claim to follow Jesus. But I would tell you guys, and, and, and hear my warning in this. If you claim to follow Jesus, but there is no pattern of regular repentance in your life, I would beg you to consider the state of your mortal soul. I mean, of course you sin. Of course, you're tempted. Of course, we all live in a fallen world. But do not be deceived. Judgment is real. And it is coming. And apart from Christ, you and I and the world has no hope. Period. Practice repentance. Believe in his work on your behalf. Receive the free gift of forgiveness. Beloved, do not be lackadaisical with this truth. For those of you who are in Christ and you know that you are battling to repent and participate with Christ, we don't get out of this warning. Look what Peter says at the end of the text. Live holy and godly lives. And, and look at this. Work to bring about the kingdom. Work to make the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. 
So how do we, how do we do this? How do we partner with God in his kingdom work here and now? Beloved, I think the answer is in our text, and I think it's simple. We live like him. And that means love. I know that's the most cheesy, pastory thing I could tell you, but guys, we can't get past that. If you want to participate with God, if you want to bring about the will of God here on earth, if you want to see the kingdom here and now, then you must live a life of Jesus' love. Let me say that again. We are to live lives of Jesus' love. There is no other way for the kingdom to come about here and now. Look, Jesus' work on the cross is accomplished, and he is coming back. The kingdom is coming one way or the other. One day, all sin, all pain, all suffering, all injustice, all evil will be gone forever. But you and I, beloved of Jesus, we have been invited to work toward that end and for that kingdom right here and right now. Right here. Right now, in St. Louis, in your neighborhood, in your work, in your family, in our world, right now, you can be a part of making the kingdom come. Or we can be a part of making the judgment come. So what is this life of Jesus' love? What does it look like? How do we do that? Turn with me for a moment. One of the most famous passages in all of scripture. I'm going to read you a chunk of 1 Corinthians 13. Go ahead and turn there. I want you guys to look at this. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, we read this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of them is love. Guys, this is not some sentimental, sappy passage to be read at weddings. This is a call on the church of God to radical Jesus living in a broken and sinful world in desperate need of a savior. Beloved of Jesus, this is a call on you and on me now and here today to go forth in the love of Jesus. 
to go forth in love. You know, when Paul wrote that letter, this church was arguing over what made them more spiritually mature or what made them better or gave them higher standing. And they were arguing about spiritual gifts and trying to have power and authority over one another. And in that context, Paul cuts through all of that and says, what does your spiritual gifts matter? If you don't have love, it's all pointless. It all comes back to love. Guys, in heaven, you won't need faith because you'll be face to face with Jesus. You won't need hope because your hope will be realized. You won't need spiritual gifts. You won't need to be in authority. You won't need to be thought of as mature or godly or spiritual. You won't need to compete. You won't need that stuff because you'll be in perfect eternal union with Jesus. The only thing that will still be there, that will still exist, that will continue on for all eternity is your Jesus love. Are you growing in that love? Does that, does that cut to the core of your person? Does it define who you are and how you engage this world? As your workplaces reopen, are you walking in love? As you step back in that office, as you begin to have meetings again, are you patient, kind, slow to anger? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable? Are you resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing? As you walk into stores and parks and community areas surrounded by people in masks and gloves and, and having differing opinions on how to engage that, are you walking in love? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you slow to anger? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing all things? As you log into social media and you read people's posts about society and politics and justice and the world around you, are you walking in love? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you slow to anger? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing all things? As you become informed politically for the coming election, are you walking in love? Are you patient like God? Are you kind like Jesus? Are you slow to anger like Jesus? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing all things? As you read news stories about injustice and police violence and demonstrations and protests, are you walking in love? Are you patient like God? Are you kind like Jesus? Are you slow to anger like Jesus? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing all things? As you care for your spouse, your kids, your extended family, your friends, 
Are you walking in love? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you slow to anger? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Are you hoping and enduring and bearing all things? Beloved of Jesus, it comes down to this. Is your life hastening the kingdom of God? Is it bringing about the kingdom of God here and now? Or is it hastening the judgment of God? Let us be a people who walk in the love of Jesus and establish the kingdom of Jesus in our world, in our homes, in our community, here and now. Let us walk in the love of Jesus and wrapping this all around to walk in the love of Jesus, to take the first step in that today means to be patient people. Patient. Who engage the world around us with kindness and hope. Hoping that God will change hearts and call more to repentance thinking of others better than ourselves, the kind of patience that really, really, really gives space for the love of Jesus to flourish. Beloved, let us walk in that kind of Jesus love here, today, and now. Amen.